Welcome to the Battleground, Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruskin. I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action, and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We have our full panel, which means Claire's out here with us. Claire is our healthcare director here at Citizen Action, and Claire, uh, just a heads up, you got to do some heavy lifting this week. We are going to talk about the coronavirus. I am prepared. All right, good, good. I'm very glad to hear that. And as always, Robert Craig, our executive director here, who is also perfectly well-suited to talk about the coronavirus. Robert Craig, good to see you. Uh, very good, but no direct experience, fortunately. Oh, well, no. We, we're we're going to get into it. We are going to talk about it because it is suddenly uh, becoming clear that we are likely to deal with it uh, here in this country, but already it's being dealt with uh, uh in, around the globe. So, uh, we, in addition, we're going to talk about the Democratic presidential primary. There was a debate uh, last night. We're recording on Wednesday morning, unlike our usual Thursday, but we will talk about the debates and we'll talk a little bit more broadly about the Democratic presidential primary. We also have a new poll here in Wisconsin that has new numbers around that presidential primary and some other uh, interesting information we want to talk about. We're going to talk about the role of gerrymandering in Medicaid and uh, a few other things. But with that, let's talk about the coronavirus um, Certainly, our listeners are well aware this has been an issue, particularly in China, uh, but it has definitely spread to a number of other countries, including, uh, quite publicly, Italy. Uh, and Italy seems to be following a similar path to China in terms of full, fully basically closing off cities in, in areas that are infected. And this week, in fact, in the last 24 hours, really, the CDC here uh, has really started the, starting to warn that it's really not a question of uh, if, but when. Um, and notably, I think, like, San Francisco is already starting to take steps, and we know probably most cities are already starting to talk about this. Uh, and it also came up in the Democratic debate a little bit uh, uh, the night before. But, uh, Claire... You're a healthcare expert here. Actually, both you and Robert are. But uh, nonetheless, Claire, I, I want to get your thoughts, first of all, on just broadly. But then I know you have some other implications that you want to talk about it related to the uh, coronavirus. So, yes, I do. Um, and and let's start, start I think, with, um, you know, you fighting the sort of coronavirus stigma, right? So yep. the we, we should be prepared and we should be practicing good public health practices. Um, but the risk of getting coronavirus in the United States is, is still very low. Um, yep. we, like I said, we should be doing good things to protect ourselves as a matter of practice anyway, to keep ourselves healthy from other viruses uh, like the flu. Um, and, and so that we are already using those things in case this outbreak gets, gets worse in the United States. Um, but, but a lot of that is because um, the, the coronavirus uh, spreads uh, person to person. It's, it spreads through, um, you know, s little microscopic bits of fluid that land on, on, on us when you're within six feet of somebody who's uh, sneezing or coughing. Um, so that's why it's important to do things like wash our hands on a regular basis and cover our mouths if we're sneezing and stay home if we're sick, right? So let's just start by doing all of that, right? That's important, basic. Um, <laughs> like, let's yeah. not freak out, first of all. And then this, similar to other things like the flu and head colds, some basic practices need to be practiced And also uh, let's not freak out, which is not yeah. being led with enough. For the most part, yeah. it's very mild, like yeah. a common cold. So 
it's not Ebola, it, it, right. but it does it is deadly for some people, and, and uh, so it's very it's very problematic. But it, it's not like you get it and you're you have a, and, and you're dying. Likely not even. So so now that we've covered that, let's talk more about like okay, right? Like it's already Italy, their response, America, right? Oh, also, I think we heard Israel is like kicking people out from uh, certain countries. South Korea, South for Korea, example. Yep. They're going a little bit uh, bonkers. Right. Yeah. So, Claire, some, I'll let you continue. I want to talk about our role in the United States and the role of innovation in treatments of new diseases and illnesses like coronavirus. Uh, a, a big role that um, the United States federal government and pharmaceutical industries both claim to play um, to, to varying degrees in reality. Um, is is in innovating vaccines and treatments for diseases like this and illnesses, um, and uh, I think this is going to be how a big way that you, the United States plays a role on the international stage in in treating uh, this disease. So um, the United and the United States has, has a long history of doing this, right? So we've helped develop life saving medi- uh, medications and vaccines to prevent. Um, uh, like uh, polio and rubella. Um, so so this is something that we know um, that we have the skills and the capacity to do in this country. Um, but um, drug corporations um, often have little interest in investing in vaccines for diseases because um, they're, they're often expensive and complicated to make. And then people take them once, maybe twice throughout their lives instead of sort of repeated regular courses of treatment, which means they're not as regularly used and there's not as much room for profit, right? Um, and, and so um, that is why there is not, or has not in recent and more deadly epidemics like with Ebola and Zika um, have been the level of um, investment in things like um, cures and vaccines as quickly as maybe we would like based on the number of people who who died and the seriousness of those illnesses. Because this is a, the quintessential sort of public interest here, right? It's, there's not, as you're pointing out, a huge amount of profit because, right, it's complicated. It's not something that someone's going to get over and over that you could profit off of. It's something where you're basically trying to stop a, a a massive pandemic, um, and 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 so there's not a a private interest to invest heavily in these areas is is what is what I'm hearing. Well, here. yeah, and furthermore, I know Americans are very upset about the price gouging and and the effect of them on the prescription drug monopoly that we've created with government power. The idea the market did this is a, is an absurdity. They've been doing this for a long time, the pharmaceutical industry. There are a lot of diseases around the world that literally could be nearly cured and have very cheap um, cures, medications to control them or cure them altogether, which are not being developed by a pharmaceutical industry for lack of sufficient profit. So this is what you get when you allow them to take uh, medications, mostly with public research in the first place, Grant, grant the monopolies and rig the whole system to maximize profits for Wall Street. And so we're about to learn, maybe we'll see if we learn the lesson, uh, the cost of this once you actually have a pandemic. And remember, global warming is going to cause more pandemics. Yeah, and I think that's a good segue into the next thing um, that I was going to talk about, um, which is that because um, this has already shown 
there are the coronavirus, I should say, has already shown um, the possibility to spread across countries uh, like the United States. Um, th that means that there is the possibility for profit um, in in developing um, and uh, dispersing treatments and vaccines for the illness. Um, and so drug companies, um, specifically two of the U.S.'s biggest drug companies, uh, Johnson & Johnson, Johnson & Johnson, and uh, Sanofi have uh, jumped in already to work with uh, the government in hopes of capitalizing on the more than $700 million that have already been put into coronavirus research. And um, that, that's basically a price tag uh, that is worth their, their participation. Um, but the problem is, is that a lot of times the federal government, even though it's tax dollars that go into developing the, uh, the research and, and doing the research that finds the treatments and vaccines for these diseases, then they'll often grant, to Robert's point, a, a patent or a monopoly to a specific drug company um, to, to basically just like run and produce that. Um, and so we think that instead of granting um, these extensive patent rights to corporations with monopoly powers, and then they get to set this price for vaccines, um, or excuse me, for, for any of these drugs, that uh, DHS should grant more limited licenses and implement safeguards to help ensure that everybody can actually have um, affordable access to these uh, vaccines. Because really, like, what good does it do us if there is a vaccine or a treatment for the coronavirus if nobody can afford it because a drug company has received monopoly power and jacked the price up, just like they have done for other, um, for other industry uh, sort of... Seen their track record, like insulin, about, um, yep. like HIV/AIDS treatments. I mean, it, the list goes on and on. Allow me to be even more radical. The <laughs> the advanced progressive thinking on this is public production of medications, and California is looking at that. People in D.C. talking about prescription drugs think we need to go there at least as a if we don't have medications in the area, we just do it. So just waiting for pharmaceutical corporation to do the right thing or bribing them to do the right thing is not the approach we have to take. We can try to make them act better, as Claire is rightly pointing out, but we don't have to rely upon them. They are no value added whatsoever. And I want to point out one last thing, which is that um, 45 members of Congress, including uh, our own Congressman Mark Pocan, recently signed a letter to um, Trump and uh, HHS Secretary Alex Azar um, to uh, to basically do what I what I just said is to, is to not grant these monopoly patents to drug companies. Um, so so if you are a constituent of Congressman Pocan, reach out and thank him. If you're a constituent of any other member of Congress, we encourage you to to reach out to them and encourage them to sign on to the same letter. And this is um, really important going forward because right now it's the coronavirus and we want to talk about it because it's unclear how this may impact us. But it's this is the future, right? We're going to continue to have these kinds of issues globally and how we address this when we're talking about the public good versus you know private profit uh, is very critical. Uh, when we get back, we'll talk about how this seeped in a little bit into the debate and how it should actually because there's real... Uh, questions here that uh, have implications for the presidential race. You are listening to the Battleground Wisconsin with Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. We are talking about, uh, we've been talking about the coronavirus because it is, it is really starting to seep into the conversation here in the country in terms of it potentially really impacting us. 
Um, but also, for example, uh, again, we recording on Wednesday, the Dow fell uh, over a thousand points, I believe, uh, yesterday, and it was and around about, this about eighteen hundred points the day before. 18, yeah, so we like. This is having real implications. It's all, I mean, some of the impacts on the Chinese economy are, are becoming much more apparent. Uh, and we're hearing about that as it relates, right? We have an, a very integrated economy. Uh, and so we're starting to already hear about those impacts, right? But it is unclear as to like how significant it could if it actually came here in the way it is in Italy now. Um, I, anyone else, any other final thoughts on that? Oh, but because uh, I want to actually, Robert, give you a chance to talk about Bloomberg brought this up in the debate last night, uh, the presidential debate. And I want to make sure we do that and talk about that because I want to transition to talking about the presidential primary debate. Robert? Yes. Uh, uh, we'll get into the debate analysis, Matt. Yep. yep. But uh, Mike Bloomberg had a more effective debate, uh, I say relatively speaking, given the low standard he set in the Las Vegas debate. Uh, but one of the effective things he did talk about was coronavirus and the fact that uh, uh, Trump has uh, fired the pandemics director at CDC uh, a couple of years ago. So Trump's bizarre way of governing, which is not filling positions, firing people randomly unless they're cronies. Apparently no Trump cronies will be in charge of pandemics. I'm sure they're not qualified. Uh, and this brings up, you know, there is such a thing as a public sector that's being hollowed out and having things like the CDC actually matters. And that's a progressive value. And right wing politicians are going to be uh, all grandstanding about what they're doing, but they're not interested really in funding the CDC, funding the NIH, et cetera. Robert, Trump has, I mean, he's proposed cuts to CDC repeatedly. So we're talking, right, as and you said, this Biden is. Biden actually to his, uh, was also clever. Biden had a also a set, not setting as low standard as Bloomberg, but has set a low standard in previous debates and therefore was seen as maybe the co-winner even by some or, or just behind Elizabeth Warren. I'm talking about the pundit analysis, not my own. Uh, and one of the things he pointed out was his work to prevent uh, the Republicans from cutting NIH and limiting cuts to CDC, I believe. So he, he had a way to talk about his record that was quite timely given the uh, fears about the coronavirus. Yeah, I want to be clear. It's not just that Trump fired one person who was in charge of responding yeah. to pandemics. Like he fired the entire pandemic response chain of command, including the White House management and infrastructure. Um, like it, it just, to your point, just hollowed were, out the were, entire were ability they, to respond. Were they colluding with uh, the deep state or something? I mean, one only has to wonder. <laughs> this is serious, Robert. No, I'm talking about how unserious no, Trump's I know. reasoning might be. Do you think he was right. thinking about pandemics and our response no. when he did this? No. Well, and, and here we are, right? Here we are. We're sitting in the situation going into a historically important presidential debate, uh, presidential contest, and we have this state, right, you know, uh, as we head into figuring out how we're going to deal with coronavirus. Uh, I do want to talk about the presidential uh, primary. Um, so since we last talked, we talked about the amazing and sensational debate last week in Las Vegas and what a beautiful sparring match it was, how entertaining it was. What we didn't know when we were talking was that it ended up being the highest rated Democratic presidential primary debate in the history of debate. 19 million plus people watching, which, by the way, means that there were people on Facebook 
telling their friends they needed to tune in because there is no way that there were probably 19 million at the start. It was a Friday but, night, I think, wasn't it? <laughs> no, I think it was a Wednesday or Thursday. Okay. It was a Wednesday evening, but it yeah. was just any sensational. And so here we are this week now. We come out, Sanders wins the uh, Bizarre Caucus uh, process, which, by the way, like just really does suppress turnout. We just got to say that. Uh, but Sanders wins convincingly, um, and... We're now headed into South Carolina, and we have the strangest of debates last night. Um, first of all, it, it, it was it was no, it was nothing like the debate in Las Vegas in terms of how entertaining it was. Uh, the moderators seem to have lost all control of the debate from the beginning. Yeah, deltas to the uh, CBS News team, which proved less capable than the other networks, uh, including the cable networks, and actually moderating it all, which meant everyone felt like Elizabeth Warren got too much airtime last time by the sharpness of her attacks, and therefore they were all talking over each other yeah. and talking well beyond time limits, yeah. and people were being attacked, and there was no attempt to give them a chance to respond yeah. in real time when the public uh, viewer might actually remember what was said about them. It, so it was... You, you had like 20, 30-second stretches where two people were talking yeah. at the... At least two people at the same time. It was... They yeah. need to have Terrible. one of the anchors uh, agree to be the heavy and have one that's capable of it. But they were they were cra- extraordinarily passive uh, and didn't even really start chiding the candidates to follow the rules until well after the mayhem had broken out. But the result is that most of the spin on this, and I think this is correct having watched it, was is that it was muddled and it didn't have any decisive result. But... And I think what the pundits basically said, if you if you look at Elizabeth Warren had the strongest overall performance, but it was not as sharp our breakthrough as Las Vegas. Uh, but she got a, a, we don't know if it'll help her, a, a surprisingly large number of shots in, uh, both at, she started taking on Bernie, but the, I'll get to that, but let me just say that Bernie took all the incoming, and my interpretation is that for the most part, it was it was all you know glancing or you know glancing. There was nothing, no no hits that are going to get replayed or anything like that. Though Senator Sanders was looking annoyed and doing uh, close to eye rolls, if not full eye rolls, uh, from time to time. I'll get into what Warren said later, but let me just uh, open it up. Uh, and Biden performed, as I said, uh, uh, well compared to past performances. And he he was he's leading in South Carolina, so it was considered a victory for Biden. And Bloomberg was not as bad. So it was seen as an improvement. Uh, The only thing I'll push back slightly on is I I think by and large Sanders made it through unscathed. But I do think that the Cuba comments landed. Right. Like, I I mean, it seemed from from the clip I I will. I'm going to admit I did not sit down and watch the whole debate because it was it was that's good. Then that will have impact. So, yeah. Right. And and I and I think, um, well, first of all, it was just too anxiety ridden to sit down and watch the whole thing. It just was the the chaos and whatnot right um but yeah but i I read all of the sort of follow-ups by multiple news sources um and 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 watched the clips and that's and then i think it's something that landed and uh, that said like they had to dig pretty deep to find something i feel like that that would landed um in the way that that did um I, 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 I'm I functionally agnostic on, I, on how I think he handled it. I don't think it's going to get a ton of play down the road. I, um, well, it could in Florida, which is a key state. But I, I, I'm a wrong person to ask because 
uh, these kind of you you talk to Cuba and said something nice about Phil Castro when we have foreign policy that's been in bed with dictators uh, since yeah. the end of the World War II <laughs> is just so absurd to me. But I know that in American politics that Fidel Castro is the big evil thing and it doesn't matter what yeah. we do to get in bed apparently with the dictator of South Korea, China, Russia, etc. comparatively, which is just so, bizarre, but it is probably might well be the case with the public. I'm actually going to... Steal something from uh, uh, Gordon Hintz, who I think won <laughs> okay. won won the internet last night. Um, I think the Bucks won the debate last night <laughs> <laughs> with their fiftieth win. Um, and I'll just say, in my house, <laughs> with uh, where where I was not in full control of of what was on the TV, the Bucks won. And we went back and forth between the debate and we're watching the debate. The debate just was not because it was so poorly moderated. Just was not as interesting as the Bucks game. <laughs> oh, I, I'm afraid you were going to give the credit to Amy Klobuchar's Uncle Dick in his deer stand, who no, came up we, with a new character. Seriously, we would turn on and we would watch that debate for like ten minutes, and it was just like it was so uneven. It was like a really bad boxing match where like they're grabbing each other and whole, and you know the ref is like trying to insert themselves, but failing miserably. Oh, actually, the ref never showed up or was on the outside of the ring. Maybe go stop let it. Me, um, so get... anyway, so back to that, right? Like, hey, shout out to the Bucks, 50 wins. It was very <laughs> exciting, and um, that does speak to what I thought was the level of the quality of the debate. Robert? I'm just, let me run through. If you go through the whole debate, Elizabeth Warren, I'm not sure it broke through, did have a surprisingly large number of, you know, direct hits on people. She reprised her attacks on Bloomberg, not as it, they were not surprised this time, so it was not as clear a decision. But she definitely, and she not only went after him for the Me Too uh, issues, which are substantial, but for funding right wing candidates for Congress and for Senate, including decisive ones, and including against her own opponent uh, when she won election to the Senate. Uh, she took after Bernie on and others on number of fronts. She took after Bernie on. Wall Street, talking about her being the only one on the stage with a very effective response with the Consumer uh, Finance uh, Administration that she created. She talked about how she has an implementation plan and a finance plan for Medicare for All and that he does not. And she, for her trouble of figuring one out, she got trashed by his team. I think she means her all of his internet supporters. And uh, he, she talked about none of what he wants to do can occur without a filibuster, and he doesn't want to get rid of a filibuster, and she does. It may all be too substantive, uh, and all that may get attention <laughs> is the Bloomberg spar, but, but like, it's important. But nerds that was, like me's hearts explode. I was going to say, that's a great way. We're going to have to take a break on that, but that is the state of democracy. It may have been too substantive for everyone to comprehend. With that, you are listening to The Battleground Wisconsin with Citizen Action. Welcome back. Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We are talking about the Democratic presidential primary. Um, before we left, Robert uh, talked about how Elizabeth Warren really laid it out in great clarity about how she would a actually accomplish many of the things Bernie is talking about, Robert. Yeah, one, I didn't quite summarize it because yeah. we're running out of time in that, but it is this. She's had this struggle to figure out since she is not as left as Bernie on most issues, how she distinguishes herself. 
and her posi- her now clearer position than before is is that she is bold and progressive, but she has a much more like a uh, better chance of getting it done and has a record of getting it done, uh, of actually having implementation plans and being willing to adjust and work through to get a deal done that is actually very progressive. And you know. That is a that is a potentially clear, compelling reason for a progressive to support her. Uh, I still tend to think you just vote for the straight out flaming progressive for a lot of a lot of folks um, on the left, which I count among myself among. Uh, but it's a much clearer branding of herself within the progressive side, and she is not really trying to say she's part of the moderate wing, though she is certainly siding with them that Bernie won't be able to get any of the things done that he says he's going to get done, which is their critique. So it, this, before we move on, I do want to say it did give her an opportunity to talk about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which um, can't be understated as far as like in the time, like mm-hmm. what she was able to accomplish and how successful it was. By the way, it was one of the first things and clear things Trump knew they had to go after and Republicans had As to go get. That's a great populist for because, the people. Well, because it was working <laughs> and it was very effective at like trying to make some changes. Um, with that, though, um, I don't know, Claire, did you have anything else you wanted to say? I want to make sure, give you a uh, sure, last the, word. The last thing that I'll say is um, that there was one line that I saw repeated um, in all of the, the news coverage that I read about the debate, uh, which is that, again, I think Warren did a great job of getting under Bloomberg's skin um, and shows that she, and, I, and I'm going to be like, a woman, yeah, um, is, as, as I think, most effective in, in taking on some of the, the sexist um, and challenging behavior of, of men in the this race, um, a Bloomberg and Trump in particular. I shouldn't just say that broadly. Um, and and Bloomberg's response was, "With this senator, enough is enough, uh, or, no, or enough is never enough." Yes, um, <laughs> which feels a little bit like the "Nevertheless, she persisted" yeah, line yeah. that was quoted at Elizabeth Warren a number of years ago. And um, I, I can say, like, I think a lot of women relate to this, where like you're you're going in on an issue and you're like no this is really important to me and somebody's like well when is enough going to be enough right 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 um, as opposed yeah. to a substantive response to what you well, just laid out the yeah, critique is that she's just going to uh, claim i'm not saying it's accurate that she's going to move the goalpost uh yet she just wants to beat up on him and you know she couldn't get another word edgewise but uh, immediately occurred to me sitting there was uh she could have said yeah, uh, yeah there is a way to satisfy me but apparently you'll never do it <laughs> yeah right and so and so my point is like i just very broadly i think women deal with this a lot and i think i don't i related to this and i'm sure there are other women who are watching this that that feel like a kinship to elizabeth warren in that moment at least where you're where you're where you're trying to do something real and you're trying to do something substantive and and it and it just gets um and it just gets dismissed as as sort of just harping or something it's going to be um, up there with his growing lexicon mirror bloomberg which also includes the i just told a joke they didn't like uh, comment to the first so debate. I am going to we're going to slightly shift gears here back to Wisconsin. Um, we have some new polls that have come out around the presidential race and some other things. But uh, this is a reminder: we have an election Tuesday, April seventh, and so that's why you're going to be hearing more about polling now, especially after Super Tuesday. Wisconsin will become very important, and I, I remind folks. Uh, we have like a two, almost a two-week window where there'll be no primaries before the Wisconsin primary, and so we are going to be totally inundated with all these candidates uh, coming in here uh, a couple weeks out. And this poll reminds us of that. 
a new poll, and there's a couple of them, but I'm going to start and talk about the UW-Madison's um, Electron Elections Research Center, um, which showed Bernie Sanders has now a, a commanding lead, and by that, he's at 30%. We've talked about this, that 30% in a very large field is very strong, and the next closest uh, is, is Biden at 13%. So, and then they're all fairly uh, evenly divided up between uh, nine and 13%. Um, so what we're seeing nationally and the momentum that we talked about earlier that uh, came out of uh, Nevada is definitely showing up in this poll. Uh, any thoughts uh, that folks have about this uh, and uh, heading into Wisconsin? Well, this gives Bernie, what is the number, a 17 point lead? Uh, yep. And so that's clearly outside the margin of error, so it was significant. He did win 71 of 72 counties in 2016 against Hillary Clinton, who was a, let's face it, a very strong candidate at the time, uh, despite the outcome of the general election. And so obviously he's the person to beat, and there is a strong progressive constituency among Wisconsin Democrats. You don't always see it reflected in state government currently. I think that it will have its effect and force moving forward, and 2016 was just an example of that. There is still a strong progressive base in the state. Um, and it's gonna be interesting to see whether anyone moves into contention. I mean, Mike Bloomberg seems to be spending a great deal here, and his office is two blocks from ours, and it's full of signs and full of paid staff all the time. So we'll see, but no sign of that quite yet, Matt, unless you, since you're such a avid tracker of the polls, you, you, you may know better. I do want to point out, just in terms of polling generally, which the listeners know that I'm very suspect of, that you would think the moderate uh, track critique that uh, Biden's a terrible general election candidate and Trump's apparent belief that it's the best candidate for him to run against to be Sanders would be reflected in any of the polling. There is no polling that shows some terrible head-to-head. -head. In fact, Bernie's head-to-heads are better than most other candidates most of the time uh, because he is a democratic socialist or because he admitted that Fidel Castro had a strong education policy. Claire? Uh, I think all that is accurate. Um, I, I agree that it feels like a commanding lead right now. Um, I don't know how, I, I don't have a good sense of, of how stable that is. It, it probably is pretty stable. Um, but we also have not experienced in Wisconsin yet um, the level of campaigning that has happened in states like South Carolina um, and Nevada. And it'll be really interesting to see what sort of messaging gets tailored to Wisconsin. Um, we saw Amy Klobuchar throw out a bit about the voter purge in Wisconsin at the, at the debate uh, this week. And uh, I think that's just a very small taste of what people might decide or what these candidates might decide to talk about as it relates to Wisconsin. Uh, and, and so anyway, so that's what, I, that's what I'm looking forward to. I know it's not super about I the poll. I add there's a little bit here that's interesting that is uh, uh, Biden leading among African American voters in Wisconsin. So and that's why he may pull out South Carolina. So African American voters still stand still tending towards the moderate wing because this tends to be the older more established voters, relatively speaking, in a primary, but that Sanders winning not only among white voters, but Latino voters. And if that holds what happened in Nevada, which was the biggest outcome in Nevada, uh, uh, that, may be, that may sweep 
Bernie to the nomination because you think about California and Texas and states like that. My goodness, if 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 Bernie is the is is very popular among Latinos elsewhere, as he was in Nevada, and as his Wisconsin poll suggests, then that is that's huge. And there's been less attention to that than black voters, but I think people need to start paying attention. So. This poll and others stand in sharp contrast to just the January uh, MU poll where Biden was at 23%, Bernie was at 19 So it shows that there's been significant shifts um, for Bernie and away from Biden. Um, to what Claire was saying, I tend to think that Bernie's pretty solid, that 19 to 20% is very solid. Um, if if Biden were to get momentum out of South Carolina and and Super Tuesday, I could see the polls, Wisconsin immediately reflecting that. Yes. But that's about it, right? Like otherwise this remains an incredibly divided field. I'm not convinced that Bloomberg money will play well in a state like Wisconsin necessarily, or or that'll really eat into Sanders. That being said, I actually want to bring up, before we go to break, one of the things that I think was most interesting in the poll, and an article broke uh, this morning on it, and that is actually who did not vote in 2016 that was surveyed in this poll. Um, And it was also uh, done in Michigan and Pennsylvania. But of folks who did not vote in 2016, by a two-to-one margin, if, say, in the November election, they'll vote for the Democratic candidate. So there, there's a really, that's mm-hmm. encouraging, right? And it tells us some of what we th- kind of all kind of know, right? Like, we did not have a awesome, we did not have our best turnout in 2016. There were folks who didn't go. And those folks, if we can get them out, ought to be with us, right? Ought to break that out, way. And if we and, have and a so, candidate that inspires them, which I would say we did not have in 2016. So what's interesting when you dive even deeper into this, Elizabeth Warren actually has the largest advantage amongst these voters over Trump, 56 to 24, whereas Sanders is at 55, 24, so they're basically tied. Biden is at 50 to 26. To your point, Robert, None of the polling seems to demonstrate that that guy actually is the magic weapon to win, you know, other than, you know, the idea that he's strong among African-American voters. But with that, we got to take a break. You're listening to Battleground Wisconsin. We will be right back after this small message. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about some state-level stuff. Um, I, I want to make sure we talk about a new report that came out this week um, from Center for American Progress, which is a fairly traditional Democratic-leaning uh, think tank. Uh, and basically, the report makes the argument that the reason we did not expand Medicaid in Wisconsin and some other places is is essentially because of gerrymandering. and. Um, wanted to bring this up because, you know, this is exactly the point that Governor Evers has been making, and this is essentially Governor Evers' message around why we don't have Medicaid, why we don't have uh, legalized uh, uh, marijuana for medicinal purposes, a number of other issues. Robert, your thoughts? And I think Governor Evers deserves praise, as I we've given him before on Battleground Wisconsin. He's been very effective on the Fair Maps issue, 
and uh, we've been critical of him in, in his handling of some other things as far as our preferences, not saying that everything would go going swimmingly with the Republican legislature if our preferences were adopted, but we've had some differences. But he has played this extremely well from a tactical standpoint. He gets its importance, obviously, as we all do, all the listeners of Belgrade, Wisconsin, too. And his Citizens Commission is a stroke of, of, of political genius in, in it, and has the Republicans on the defensive. But what the Center American Progress uh, report shows, which is the whole problem with gerrymandering and why it's shocking and shameful the U.S. Supreme Court punted one of the main democracy issues of our time, which tells you how rigged right-wing courts are, uh, is that it insulates elected officials from the opinions of voters. And the whole point of elections is for them to actually suffer consequences if they go against things that matter to the public, which Medicaid expansion definitely did, uh, for their own ideological or partisan reasons. And so literally, we forget, like, and this is a problem in Congress too, but it's even worse and been supercharged here even more in the legislature, that when uh, Democrats, Northern Democrats voted to nationalize slavery, in effect, Stephen Douglas's popular sovereignty before the Civil War, uh, three quarters, over three quarters of Democrat, Northern Democrats lost re-election for Congress, and that's what created the modern Republican Party. It also split the Whig Party in half, the other party that died, uh, that used to be the, the other party in the two-party system. We don't have that anymore, so you can go and just have us pay a billion more to cover fewer people and, and just, it, just thumb your nose at opinion polls because you're put in districts where you can't lose no matter what you do. That is fundamentally undemocratic and outrageous. Claire? I agree, I agree with all of that. Um, I would add that in Wisconsin, I think a particularly unique factor is the strength of the the leaders in the in the legislature in the Republican Party. So, uh, yes, it was gerrymandering that um, I think enabled um, them to be so so strong um, and, and to have such strong control of of their caucus. Um, but um, you know, but but also. Uh, this, this hyper-partisan um, divide um, and, and is happening, and Medicaid got caught in the middle of that. Um, it, uh, I, I feel like we've talked about this for months, and I've run out of a lot of interesting yeah. things to but say about it, but it's your, just it's Your just point so about true. Voss, right? You're yeah, essentially Robin saying Voss. Voss, Fitzgerald, and Walker do matter at some level, right? But in terms of the kind of leadership that they have definitely uh, displayed, um, gerrymandering i would argue gave them the ability to be Absolutely. so to be so bold but it is worth pointing out right and i remember this back to the days of act 10 and and then after that even um let's say what was it um getting rid of uh, car check right um let's uh let's remember that a lot of people always thought no no they really won't go that far they really won't do that right no and the leadership of walker and leading Republicans to stand strong behind that gerrymandered supermajority does matter. It is worth pointing out um, that we have had a unique and particularly authoritarian kind of leadership here in the no, state. No, there was a denial. People yeah. forget because I was heavily engaged with a lot of the key uh, uh, opinion leaders in the Labor and Democrat side at the time. People before act, the bomb was dropped, as Walker told it, were in denial. And I was of the opinion 
and I, ha- I had an inkling because the fir- a- a- Assembly Bill 1 and Senate Bill 1 that year were uh, tort reform, and they were vicious, and they were even unpopular stuff for them. And so I took from that that they were going for the jugular on, on everyone, and, and, and that if they were going to do the trial lawyers, they were going to go after public employee unions. And so it's an excellent point, Claire, right? Like, not only did the, were, were these great maps, but we had a particularly effective, I'll say it, effective leadership on the other side that refused to give up on these things, even if they thought they were politically unpopular, even, uh, you know, they were willing to take those risks knowing, right, strategically knowing that they had the maps to back them up. Um, and let's remember, those leaders were involved in helping set up those maps in a diabolical, very secretive way, right, which um, showed that they kind of understood that they how they wanted to use them. Uh, uh, two key points. One is we need to remember, and we need to remember this as far as all mandates on our own side, that Democrats had full control for the two years leading in. A number of us were pushing for an Iowa-style uh, fair maps process, and the Democratic establishment and their campaign operations and the groups that simply support Democrats were opposed and lobbied against it because they hoped to gerrymander. They wouldn't have done it as bad. This was way worse than previously. But this partisan interest crept in, and we need to not let that ever happen again. And I think, if anything, all the progressive activists the last 10 years across the state have made that virtually impossible, but it required citizens getting involved, and that's a kudos to the whole, all the activists involved in the Fair Maps movement. The other thing is, if you think about this, even really bad Supreme Court decisions around big business at least have some fig leaf of a public interest, like a functioning market and what innovations, whatever it is, right? Intellectual property is something sort of fundamental thing. There's nothing here other than the rights of political parties. And the founding founders didn't actually recognize political parties and hope there wouldn't be any. They thought they were factions. So there's no way the Constitution recognizes the right of a party uh, to draw the maps and, and, and rig things for itself, but it's found by these alleged strict constructionists, and I'm telling you, they're finding it because they're politicians in robes, and this is why the whole idea that the Supreme Court is the final arbiter and these other courts are when, they, when you have hack politicians in robes making the decisions is an outrage. We all know that the Republican Supreme Court in Wisconsin would have thrown out the lame duck laws if a Democratic legislature legislature did it to an incoming Republican governor. We all know that. It's hard to follow that fiery speech. Well, take a uh, breath first. Start with a breath. <laughs> take a deep breath. Okay. I'm doing Bernie Sanders like waving. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree with all that. Um, uh, I'll say I had, a, I had uh, sort of mixed emotional reactions when I read this, uh, when I read this article um, and, and read this report, because I think... Uh, my first thought was, yeah, no kidding, and and water's wet, and the sky is up, uh, and yeah. and I walk with my feet on the ground, right? Like I, uh, <laughs> right? I was like, you know, this is something that we've been we've been saying for a long time. Medicaid expansion is good, and Medicaid expansion will save lives, and it's hard to get it because of gerrymandering, and um, and so I, I I will admit that I experienced some from some frustration, and my um and my <laughs> anxiety went up, my blood pressure went up a little bit, um, but when I take a step back and I look at what I appreciate here is putting a human face on the issue of gerrymandering. And uh, that's what we need to do as we enter the re- 
redistricting process is that we can't get bogged down in lines um, and and you know who people are and and who lives on one block versus who lives on another block. We need to talk about those things, but they um, especially in a hyper um, sort of segregated state like uh, Wisconsin. Um, but but we need to re but we need to talk about it also in a values based way. Um, and Medicaid expansion is a great example about of that um, because in general you know, folks believe that everybody deserves to receive quality health care. And, and, and th that is just a, a right that's, that most people believe in. And, and when we can show what happens when people don't receive the health care that they need, um, and when we tie it to a policy wonky issue like gerrymandering, it makes that issue more uh, relatable. It makes people care about it more. Um, and... And that is just going to be so, so important moving forward. Claire's making two great points. First, unfortunately, and progressives are frustrated by this, people don't vote on process. And so you have to connect it to something yes. that really matters to them, like health care, like the economy, like education. And so that's why this is great. The other thing to bear in mind is sometimes we on the left get uh, let the perfect be the enemy of the good. There is not going to be perfect maps that are fair to everyone in every single way or that there is no bias involved in. This is human beings doing it, creating laws and doing things. It's a matter of the degree. Like we say, there's a difference between the very, very mild everyday bias or, or a kleptocracy, right? And so this is the same thing. We have a completely rigged maps rigged in one direction. And we need to get as far as we possibly can towards a fair system that does not systematically privilege one side or the other or any group of people over another group of people based on who they live, what their ethnicity or race is, or what their party is. And with that, we're going to have to bring this show to a close. But before we do, I do want to mention uh, that there were two really important retirements this past week in the state legislature that are important as it relates to the election. Deb Colsty. Uh, has stepped down, and also Luther Olson, a Republican and a Democrat. And those are, particularly that Luther Olson seat, it has been gerrymandered to be Republican, but it is uh, one of those that actually this might open up and you might see more Democrats get in now that it's an no open race. No, more making fun of the Lion of Ripon. The Lion of Ripon is, uh, is going to retire. And with that, we are going to bring this Battleground Wisconsin podcast to a close. Uh, we want to thank our producer, Brian Woldridge, who makes it happen every week. And we'll see you next week here at Wisconsin.